the scriptures before you, we're going to look at the very last chapter of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Scott is moving into the uh, home stretch of his sabbatical time. And I trust you are continuing to pray that this be a rich, rich time for him and for Sherry. That God will refresh, renew, restore him. Whisper his loving presence into his life and give him guidance and direction as he reconnects for the journey with us. Four a.m. In the darkness of a cold winter morning, suddenly I am fully and frighteningly awake. I see it clearly. I am going to die. I am going to die. This body, this mind, this lived and living myth, this Husband, father, teacher, son, friend will cease to be the tide of life that propels me with such force will cease. And I, this I taken so for granted by me will no longer walk this earth. A strange feeling of remoteness creeps over me. My wife beside me in bed Seems a distant person and completely out of reach. My daughters asleep in other parts of the house seem in this moment like vague memories of people I had once known. My work, my associates, my ambitions, my dreams, my absorbing projects and plans feel like fiction. Real life suddenly feels like a transient dream. And in the strange aloneness of this moment, framed by the certainty of death, I awake to the true facts of life. This is the opening paragraph of a book by James Fowler called Stages of Faith. And I believe it accurately captures at least for males moving into their 40s from personal experience, a moment, a defining moment, a terrifying moment for all of us. But a necessary moment, because I do tend to agree with James Foster that until you face the reality of your own mortality, your own death, you are not ready to come to grips with your own life. Of course, we'd like to live in delusion about all of this. We would love to be in denial about this and spend most of our time doing so. Uh, many years ago, when I was working on my master's at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, 
One of my favorite teachers was Dr. Bill Hendricks, and I took a course with him called The Theology of Paul and John. And we were at a point where we were looking at what John and Paul taught in the New Testament about this issue of mortality and immortality. And Dr. Hendricks was sharing how the the day before he had been working out at the Y and that he had struck up an acquaintance with a, a, a man who was 60 years of age who worked out with him, but did so fanatically. He was in tip-top condition, and he was that moment at the age of 60 training to participate in the Senior Olympics. And the man was always checking in with him to see what he was teaching in his classes, and so he shared. And they both also reflected on the death of a prominent person that was in the newspapers the day before. And out of that conversation... Dr. Hendricks asked the man a question. Have you come to grips with your own mortality? And this 60 year old's face became hard as granite. And through clenched teeth, he replied, I do not accept my mortality. The year was 1971, 40 years ago. And I suspect that somewhere along the way, that man came face to face with the reality he did not accept. And when we consider this question, the question of our own deaths, we bump into another question. It's one that was asked by Peggy Lee many years ago in probably the most depressing song I have ever heard performed when she asked, is that all there is? Now, that's a double edged question. And I can't believe some of you remember Peggy Lee. (laughs) That is a double edged question. Is that all that there is? Uh, That's a question of destiny, first of all. When I reach to the the day of my death and I step out into the velvet darkness, will I cease to be? That's one of the great common fears of humankind. The fear of non-being. That I will become not I. And consciousness will cease to exist for me. Is death the period at the end of the sentence? And then it's also a question of direction. If in this temporal life we are endowed with only a limited amount of the precious currency called time, can we invest it in such a way as to bring meaning and significance into our lives? Heavy, heavy questions. The question of destiny, the question of direction. The question of mortality and the question of meaning. And both of those questions are addressed as the curtain falls on the life of the greatest leader in the Old Testament history, the life of Moses. Let's examine that moment. Chapter 34. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab. To the top of Mount Pisgah, across from Jericho, there the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, 
all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to Moses, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I have let you, Moses, see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. God himself buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now, Joshua. The son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the Israelites listened to Joshua and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Here is an example of the baton being passed in full stride. And so the best is yet to be. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face who did all these miraculous signs and wonders the lord said for him to do sent him to do in egypt to pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that moses did in the sight of israel moses and god have a meeting on the mountain mountains have had always played a a vital role in the life of Moses. A few weeks ago, we considered that moment 40 years earlier when Moses stood at the foot of a mountain and God called out to him in a bush that burned but did not burn up. And Moses entered a constant conversation with his creator and God called him to this improbable task of leading his people out of bondage and into freedom. And when the first phase of that that miraculous leadership challenge was completed and and the Red Sea had been crossed and and Israel was engaged in their flight to freedom toward the promised land, God called Moses back up on the mountain again. And there, face to face in conversation with his creator, Moses received the commandments that would be the basis for God's covenant relationship with his people in the promised land. And now the journey of 40 years is over. Moses has just given his farewell address, which is found in all of Deuteronomy leading up to this chapter. And God takes him up on a mountain one more time. And he allows Moses to have a panoramic view of the legacy of his life. A life well lived except for a few temper tantrums along the way. And God says, Moses, my people will enter in just as I promised. But Moses, you will not. And I believe God whispers in his ear. 
you're going to have a grander entrance into a more bountiful land. And Moses dies just as he lived in the presence of the Almighty. And at this point, we move into the New Testament to answer the question of mortality. Is death the period at the end of the sentence? And we come to a mountain one more time. This event is found in Mark chapter 9, also Matthew 17 and Luke chapter 9. And the mountain is Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet in elevation. And Jesus stands on the slope of the mountain with his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And you remember what happens? He is transfigured before their very eyes and his face becomes absolutely radiant as he is immersed in the glory of his deity. And the father's voice is heard. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved son, listen to him. And then these awestruck disciples witness a scene that was absolutely unimaginable. They see Christ in conversation with two men they'd heard about all their lives. But these men had been gone from this earth for centuries. They saw Moses and Elijah in conversation with the Son of God. Moses, from the moment God had buried him on the mountain on that fateful day, had moved on up higher. He had graduated into eternal fellowship and conversation with God and with the Son of God. And then Hebrews 11 fills in a little more of the details of Moses' destiny beyond the grave. Hebrews 11, you'll remember, is the faith chapter of the Bible. And it calls the role of all these great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. Abraham gets a whole lot of press. But most of the ink is saved for Moses. And of all these faithful saints of the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews says they are a cloud of witnesses to you and me. They cheer us on as we run the race of our lives toward the finish line. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know, Moses and all the rest. They didn't get to see the final fulfillment of God's promise The sending of the Messiah as the bridge to the Father and to eternity. But they looked forward faithfully in faith. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. A city that has foundations. The designer and ruler of which is God himself. Is death the end of the... Period at the end of the sentence. Is that all there is when we arrive at the day of our death? The Bible says, no, there is much, much more. First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine says. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. Heart has not imagined what God has prepared For those who love him. And so in distant antiquity, the 14th chapter of Job, the cry is heard that is has been a question for all humankind. If a man die, shall he live again? Job asked that question in the midst of great suffering. 
He had lost everything. His health was failing badly and starkly encountering his own mortality. He asked that question. And even in the darkness, God sends a glimmer of hope. And Job is able to confirm in the 19th chapter of his book, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though my body be destroyed and decay, yet in my flesh, I will see him with my very eyes. And then moving from Job 14 to John 14, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, heart has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. There's a lot I don't know about heaven. There was one human being named Paul who, who got to get a glimpse of heaven and it was so overwhelming he, he was speechless for the first time in his life. But, you know, ask God for the gift of imagination. Read what the Bible says about heaven and take your best shot. And heaven is far, far better than that. I do believe the Bible teaches there are two acts of heaven, if you will. Act one is the day when we die. And Paul says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Christ, who has walked with his children all their lives will not leave us alone at that moment when we transition into our father's house. And he welcomes us into full eternal fellowship with him in heaven from the moment we transition from this temporal life. And then there's act two of heaven. And that's when Christ comes again. And the scripture says he will come again and the dead in Christ shall rise and all of his children will receive resurrection bodies, incorruptible, eternal, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And then God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And that heavenly city that he prepared for those who love him will come down to that new heaven and new earth and we will reign upon God's restored cosmos with him forever. But take your best shot, and heaven is still far, far better than that. If a man dies, shall he live again? Yes, for I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him with my own eyes and will have forever fellowship with him. Now, that's the biblical answer to the question of mortality. Now, let's come to the second question, the question of meaning. And again, we can look in the life of Moses and we can understand how it is that we can live and invest this precious currency of time so as to live with meaning and significance. And I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Can you imagine that you are like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn when they got to attend their own funeral? Remember the story, Tom and Huck got lost in this cave, search party went out, no, they were not found, everybody gave them up for dead, and last week they were complaining about these two rapscallions, and on this day at their funeral, everybody stands and weeps and talks about wonderful, how what wonderful kids they were, and they get hiding in the back, they get to hear the whole thing. I want you to imagine that you are attending your own memorial service. 
and your wife. If you're like my imagination right now. One of your adult children. And an associate from the workplace stands and one at a time they deliver your eulogy. Only they're going to tell the truth about you. What do you think they would say? What would you like for them to say? In this passage, we have the eulogy of Moses. It's very simple, but it is very powerful. And the very first thing that it says about Moses is this. Since Moses, there has not been a prophet in Israel nearly so great whom the Lord knew face to face. Can you think of a greater eulogy than to say he walked with God and God walked with him? The fundamental purpose of our lives here and now is to live an ever increasingly intimate relationship with God. That certainly characterized all of Moses' life from the burning bush experience to the the giving of the law, to the leadership lessons that God taught Moses intimately. It is seen in, to me, one of the most compelling chapters in all the Bible, the 33rd chapter of Exodus. God calls Moses up on the mountain again. And he says, Moses, we've gone this far. And now here are your instructions for the next stage of the journey. And Moses replies, I got one question, God. Are you going with us? Because I don't want to go anywhere that you are not with us. And then Moses cries out, Lord, show me your glory. Moses hungers after God and God shows him his glory. You see, the fundamental purpose of our life is to live in communion with our creator in constant communion with him. To be in unison with David in the 63rd Psalm when he cried out, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirst after you. It's to say with Paul in Philippians chapter three, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That's how I want to know Christ. And in John 15, we hear the invitation of Jesus. Keep on abiding in me. Stay in close communion with me. And I will continue to abide in you and stay in close communion With you, the fundamental purpose of our life is to live in union with Christ. Now, how do we cultivate a relationship with the living God? Well, we worship privately and corporately. Psalm 95 says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our creator, for he is our God. We are the sheep of his pasture. 
the flock under his care. We meet him in the Bible. You know, we know that the Bible is a book that contains truth about God and absolute truth about the reality of our lives. But the Bible also is an invitation to a relationship. And how do you read the Bible in such a way that the word dwells in you richly? You approach your reading of the Bible as a conversation with God. You step into the scriptures and you steep your soul in the passage. And as you reflect upon it, then you pray back to God what he is saying to you in his word. And as we worship and as we reflectively read his word and as we pray, we cultivate intimacy with Christ. So the first great purpose of our lives is to live in union with God, to develop a personal relationship with him. Are you here and now in these Days upon this earth, investing your time in getting to know Christ. And then there's the second great purpose of our lives, and, and Moses reveals that also. And you see it in, in the wrap-up of his life here in chapter 34. What is the purpose of our lives? It is the journey inward into a transforming friendship with Jesus that flows outward to the journey outward of a life on mission with God in our world. So Moses came to or God came to Moses and he said, Moses, I have a mission for you. I want you to lead my people as I move them from bondage to freedom, as I bless them so that through them I can bless the world. That is the calling of every Christ follower. God, through Christ, brings us out of bondage and into freedom that he may bless us so that through us he may bless a part of his world. And it is in that mission of representing Christ well in the, the relational traffic patterns of our life that we live the life of meaning and significance. Now, the details of every life are different. Our gifts are different. Our passions for service are different. The people we interact with are somewhat different, some more different than others. But the mission is fundamentally the same. And let me illustrate it from the little book of Jonah, since we've been spending our time mostly in the Old Testament. Why is that fish story in the Bible? Well, God comes to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I've got a mission for you that will bring meaning into your life. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. And Nineveh was the capital of the, the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were the most warlike, barbaric people upon the face of the planet. They were a fierce, godless tribe of people. And so predictably, Jonah says, no thanks, I'm out of here. And he turns his back on the mission and goes in the exact opposite direction. Now, in essence, Jonah, part of his problem, as you read his story, is that he loved being blessed but like a lot of us, he wasn't all that excited about being a blessing, especially to people he didn't like. And God has to do a whale of a job in Jonah's life to get his attention. So finally, Jonah, spitting seaweed, wiping the slime of three days off in the belly of the big fish off of him, arrives at the city of Nineveh. By now, I'm sure he is good and mad. 
And he preaches a, a very clear message to Nineveh. And here is the sum total of it. You're all going to hell. End of message. You've heard of the message, turn or burn? Jonah just says burn. And he goes and finds a shade tree on the outside of town so he can watch the fireworks. But remarkably, what happens? As Glee Jones taught me in our class on Jonah and Mike's last year, Nineveh repents. This godless, barbaric tribe of people cry out to God. And you would think Jonah would be all excited and feel warm and fuzzy about how God has used him and it's brought meaning into his life. But that doesn't happen, does it? Jonah is, Jonah is so irritated with God. He says, I knew it. I knew something like this would happen. God, you show up all loving and forgiving. And that's okay for good people like me. But the Ninevites, those unwashed, blood-sucking barbarians. And God interrupts Jonah's rant, closes the whole little book of Jonah with a question. He says, shouldn't I show compassion? On a city of 120,000 people who live in spiritual darkness. How many people live in proximity to where we are worshiping today? We soon leave this service and we go to our lives. And we are in relational interaction with how many people? This week, Marilyn and I live in downtown Bellevue, right behind the post office. We have a little tent pitched there in the parking lot. Well, maybe across the street from behind the post office. And when we make the nine and a half mile drive to the gathering place, I would not be surprised if the people we pass number about the number of Nineveh. Do I care that God cares about them? Do I view my relationships as God opportunities to represent him well before them? Do I seek acts or ministries of healing and hope that would pour out his compassion upon them? Do I seek to bear verbal witness of my faith to them? Our call, flowing out of a, a intimacy with Christ, is to be on mission with Him in our world. Do I look for God's activity in the lives of those around me who live in spiritual darkness? You see, we all do have a life beyond this worship service, don't we? What is the meaning and significance of that life? The very first church that's mentioned in the New Testament, the church in the book of Acts in the city of Jerusalem, had among its leadership a man named Stephen. Stephen had a life outside the worship service. And he lived it lovingly, wisely, and well. 
And he bore faithful testimony to his faith. And in his case, it cost him his life. Stephen was martyred because he was an outspoken Christ follower. And one of the people who, who participated in his murder was a zealous anti-Christian named Saul. And as Saul witnessed the death of Stephen, he also witnessed the farewell address of Stephen. Stephen looked up and wonder filled his face and he said, look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. And Christ was welcoming Stephen home into eternal fellowship with him. Years later, Saul, the cynic, was now Paul, the proclaimer of Christ. And he arrives at the end of his life. And we have his farewell address published for us in Second Timothy, chapter four, verses seven and eight. And Paul says, as he is ready to cross over into the father's house, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And therefore, there's a crown of righteousness waiting for me, which I will receive from the Lord, the righteous judge, and all, also to all those who love his appearing. The question of direction and destiny, of mortality and meaning, meets at the throne of Jesus. And we have the opportunity to live our lives in such a way out of the overflow of communion with Christ that Jesus can stand, applaud, and welcome us, welcome us home to see the Savior's smile, to hear, well done. This morning, I, I have a, a little exercise I would like you to do this week, and it's for your own benefit. What I would like you to do is one of two things, I'll give you options here. Either this week, read again Deuteronomy 34 and write your own eulogy. What would you like to be said at your memorial service if your life was lived lovingly, wisely and well? So that it becomes an aspiration towards which you can point the rest of of your life, that that eulogy might become reality. Now, the second option is this. Imagine that you've got a blank T-shirt. And I want you to write your life purpose in the form of a, a life theme, a simple motto, which would capture what your life is all about. You know, we put all kind of ridiculous things on T-shirts. Might as well write a life purpose statement in light of the word of God and the will of God. You know, Paul had a great one. For me to live is Christ. You might write journey inward, journey outward, which has been the theme of this series of messages and captures the dual purpose of our lives. It might be something like love God, live his mission. Live for an audience of one. 
be a pleasure to my father and bring light to my world to reflect and extend God's glory. Prayerfully think about your life and write something simple enough and biblical enough that you could actually put it on a T-shirt. In the meanwhile, will you? Will you respond to Christ's invitation for fellowship with him? Jesus says, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The chapter of John we looked at last week says that he came to his own kind and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Will you respond to Christ's invitation for salvation and for relationship, intimate relationship with him? Secondly, will you live in light of eternity? Eternity is in flight right now. And most assuredly, we are made to step across the threshold into the forever fellowship of God to understand what everlasting life and all of its beauty is all about. And to know that that is our destiny brings meaning and hope to our days right now. And thirdly, will you embrace your mission? I'm going to pray for us in just a moment and ask the Father to guide our tangible responses to what he has said in worship and in the word today. We have that valuable little tool called a connection card where you can ask for information. You can share information. You can ask for prayer as the staff prays for you on Monday morning. And it's also an opportunity to write down a tangible response how God has spoken to you in worship today. And I would invite you to do that. You know, when we come to the Father's house, He always has a purpose and He means to change our lives. He invites us to respond. So this morning, if you're here and you've not personally embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that's why you were here. God has given you a gift. And I do encourage you to step across the line of faith and to invite Christ in your life. And if you want a conversation with that, write it on the card or meet one of us afterwards. What is God saying for you to do because you worship today? Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for the marvelous gift of your meddling in our lives with your magnificent mercy and grace. That you call us to yourself. That you give us abundant and everlasting life. Now, Father, in this opportunity, this divine appointment you have made with each of us in this room today, don't let us miss it. Call us to the tangible next step decision you're asking us to make. And give us the courage to make it. In Jesus' name, amen.